KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Last month, for the first time ever, Juneteenth, a day commemorating the end of slavery in the U.S., was recognized as a federal holiday. Juneteenth this year also marked the opening of the much-anticipated Harriet Tubman Museum down in Cape May, New Jersey. Now, we all know who Harriet Tubman was and the incredible work she did helping enslaved African Americans find freedom in the mid-1800s. But did you know she had a connection to Cape May? Or that Cape May was a hotbed of anti-slavery activity? We wanted to learn more about the museum and this important history, so we reached out to Cynthia Mullock. She is the museum's executive director. This is really, really interesting stuff. Give a listen. All right, so to start, I know you guys opened on Juneteenth, and as we're talking now, how have the first few weeks of being open gone? Well, we're so excited to be open and able to share the exhibits in the museum with a broad audience. We expected to open Juneteenth 2020. Uh, obviously, the world had other plans for all of us, but um, but we're just so thrilled with the reception that we've gotten in the first few weeks that we've been open. So I'd like, I think a lot of people, when they hear Harriet Tubman connected to Cape May, they're not familiar. It's not history they've been told. Give us a quick primer of... Harriet Tubman's time in Cape May, why it was important, uh, what it was all about. Sure. So Harriet Tubman was in Cape May in the early 1850s. We can document that she was in Cape May in the summer of 1852 and likely other surrounding summers. She was working in Cape May as a domestic laborer and as a cook. And this is the time in her life when she was very active in doing her missions down to Maryland to to free enslaved people and bring them back north to freedom. So, uh, so at this time, she was earning the funds to fund those missions, but she was also working with um, an array of abolitionist activists, organizers from Philadelphia primarily, who were spending their summers in Cape May. And so that, that would likely be the, um, the people that she would have been introduced to Cape May by. Yeah, I was going to say, because it wasn't an accident like this. This was I don't know if strategic's the word, but there was a reason why she was setting up shop in Cape May. It was it was key. Absolutely. So, for instance, Stephen Smith, who was one of the founders of the Anti-Slavery Society in Pennsylvania, he created his summer home in Cape May in 1846. So in the period just before when we are able to document that Harriet Tubman was spending her time there. Um, Stephen Smith was born into slavery. He worked so hard at second jobs, he was able to negotiate his own freedom. And after he self-liberated, he created a lumber company with his partner, William Whipper, and became one of the richest black men in the United States. So he was very active in abolitionism uh, and the cause in Philadelphia. And, uh, and he created his summer home in Cape May that he built in 1846. He also was a partner in the Banneker House next door. This is right across the street from the museum. Um, and the Banneker House was the one of the free one of the first free black 
resorts in the United States. So there, there is documentation that a number of the abolitionist activists who were uh, very active in Philadelphia were spending their summers in Cape May. And you mentioned the Stephen Smith House across from the museum. From reading articles, reading on your website, this area was just kind of a hotbed of anti-slavery activity, abolitionist activity, right? Absolutely. Right. So just as you said, the Stephen Smith House is directly across the street from the museum, a little, a little diagonal. Next to that would have been the Banneker House, also built in 1846. Uh, there were a number of other properties in this uh, prominent district in downtown, uh, downtown Cape May. Were a lot of slaves on their way to freedom? Did they work their way through Cape May? We definitely do have evidence that uh, that a number of enslaved people, freedom seekers, came to Cape May's shores. Uh, if you, we have an, an early edition of William Still's *The Underground Railroad* at the museum, and William Still was another organizer working from Philadelphia. He's considered the father of the Underground Railroad, and a number of freedom seekers who made their way to Philadelphia would reach his desk. He was the chair of the Anti-Slavery Society, and he would take their firsthand narrative accounts. Um, what were the conditions that you're coming from? What was your journey to freedom? Who helped you along the way? At the, t at the same time, he was corresponding with all of these conductors of the Underground Railroad. And so if they, for instance, went through a route that took them through Wilmington, Delaware, a conductor there would write him a letter and say, you know, three or four more came last night. They should be the U in Philadelphia in five or so days. And in that book, The Underground Railroad, that's a collection of this, this seminal work of William Still, where he took all of those firsthand narrative accounts and recorded them for us. And we owe him such a debt of gratitude for recording that history of many people who wouldn't have been able to write their own stories. So in those volumes of The Underground Railroad, there's, for instance, one story of uh, six freedom seekers who made their way from Maryland in a skiff that they had purchased. Uh, and they worked their way up the coast of Maryland through the coast of Delaware and were aiming to come across to Cape May following the, the beacon of the lighthouse. And they were pursued and there was a, a fight on the water between them and some uh, white pursuers. Uh, luckily they were able to escape um, after that fight and they came and they recounted that they uh, came to Cape May's shores again, by the beacon of the lighthouse, uh, met an oyster captain there who was able to help them uh, make their way to Philadelphia. And again, William Stills' desk where he recorded their narrative account. Were there other Jersey Shore towns that were active or really was Cape May kind of where everyone kind of was funneled towards? I am aware of the narrative accounts of coming to Cape May. Obviously, there's the, the, the other land kind of um, routes, again, through Wilmington, Delaware, up to uh, Pennsylvania. That was Frederick Douglass's route. Um, and there was a Cape May family who was actually the captain of the steamship that he escaped on. That did not happen in Cape May, but that was uh, that was Captain Wilden was uh, ran the steamships from Wilmington to Philadelphia 
those same steamships that would come to Cape May as well. And so Frederick Douglass was able to escape on on one of those. But I'm not, you know, since Cape May is the peninsular tip of New Jersey, anyone who would come by land would likely come to Cape May's shores. So I'm 47, grew up in New Jersey, in South Jersey, live in South Jersey now, was completely oblivious to this incredible history until I would say within the last year, showing how important the museum is. Talk to me about the origin story of starting the museum and you know how far back are we going when wheels started turning that we need to shout this history from the rooftops and show people and have people feel this history. Well, it's such an important point. I think we're all in very similar conditions in the sense that this is history that needs to be recorded in the school books. And there are so many people within the community in Cape May who had no idea about a number of the histories, narratives, and exhibits that are recounted in the museum. And so we're really feeling very lucky to be able to share these these narratives and these accounts from the 1800s through today in a number of the exhibits throughout the museum. The home of the Harriet Tubman Museum is the Howell House and the Howell House, parts of the Howell House predate 1800. It's one of the oldest buildings in Cape May and it's the historic parsonage of the Macedonia Baptist Church next door. And so we've worked in hand in hand in partnership with the Macedonia Baptist Church. They are still the owners of Howell House with a museum is a nonprofit and rents the space from the Macedonia Baptist Church. But the Howell House in 2012 was listed as one of the most endangered historic spaces in New Jersey uh, by Preservation New Jersey. You don't want to make that list. It didn't look like the Howell House could be could be preserved. Um, It had undergone several decades uh, that it had sat vacant and was dilapidating. And so really in 2018, when the city started talking about potential rezoning and redevelopment plans, this historic district of Cape May uh, was historically the Black community, the African-American community in Cape May was centered along Lafayette Street, where the museum is, and had already undergone so much urban renewal and financial removal. In the 1920s, 1930s, this was home to a population that constituted approximately 30% of Cape May. Cape May historically was approximately 30% Black in the 1920s, 1930s. We recount in the museum tons of businesses, about 70 plus businesses that were black owned businesses throughout the years. And now there are three remaining, uh, Cape May's population now is approximately 3% black. And so uh, you'd asked, you know, when, when was the impetus for creating the museum? It was really in 2018 when these redevelopment plans were coming into effect and an overwhelming crowd of supportive, uh, concerned citizens kind of stormed the city council meeting and said, you know, we don't want to see anything happening to this space. We don't want to see as, as dilapidated as the building may be. We don't want to see it torn down. We want to see it preserved. And so our group 
approached the church and uh, said, well, why don't we work in partnership with the church? We'll create a nonprofit and um, we'll rent the space. We'll take on fundraising uh, and, and gaining community support to restore the building and preserve the building. Um, and then we can create a cultural heritage site those initial documents didn't actually say the Harriet Tubman Museum. It was intended to be a cultural heritage site, but there was so much research coming out about and through this entire decade, um, documenting Harriet Tubman's time in Cape May, uh, talking about the abolitionist activists that I mentioned who were active in Cape May, that it became uh, fairly obvious that that was the path that we should take, that this was such important history. It wasn't just preserving a building, but we call this Freedom's Corner. This is preserving incredible national history, um, history that's important to the African-American community, but also to our nation at large. So from that point, we created the nonprofit and it became um, just this incredible outpouring of support from the local community, all of these contractors, plumbers, electricians that wanted to kick in and help with their support, often working at cost, contributing materials. The local lumber store, Swain's, contributed all of the paint for the building. The Boy Scouts got involved, a number of local Cape May families and businesses contributed as founding members. And then as it gathered that support, it really kind of snowballed and escalated into a regional cause where a number of visitors to Cape May were getting involved a lot of we received a lot of press and again this is a 1600 square foot space if you look at the before photos it was basically a dilapidating building and at that point Smithsonian Magazine came in and said well this is one of the 10 most anticipated museums in the world for 2020 um, and we never had that aspiration our aspiration was to preserve the building and preserve this history that didn't have a home but but it really, you know, it, it is a microcosm of our national story where we need to, much as you said, we need to make sure that these uh, histories are recounted and that uh, the whole the whole history is told of our communities. As you're putting the museum together, as you're putting displays together, are there one or two items, letters, pieces of history that you've come across that you could see that just have an incredible wow factor for you or are just uh, the most fascinating, some of the more fascinating things you've come across? Definitely. So we do have an early edition of the Underground Railroad, the book that I mentioned by William Still. And those narratives are incredible very much worth reading. It's accessible online um, and uh, and it is just so powerful to hear these firsthand accounts of freedom seekers who bravely made their way to the North and to freedom. Beyond that, we have a legacy room uh, that recounts the African-American community's history in Cape May and the surrounding region from the 1800s to the present. And there are just so many astounding things there um, that I think 
many people in Cape May did not know about our history. One that is personal to me is I grew up in a bed and breakfast on Columbia Avenue. And as I mentioned in the 1920s, 1930s, that was the height of the Black population in Cape May. There was the Negro Baseball League had a team in Cape May uh, that played on Columbia Avenue at a baseball field there. And in 1923, there was a cross burning there by the Ku Klux Klan on Columbia Avenue, um, something that I was not familiar with before we started researching the exhibits of the museum. So you mentioned in the beginning of the interview that the original plans, Juneteenth, 2020, obviously covid the pandemic, threw a lot of plans off to the side. So what's that year like when you guys are closing in? I assume everything, you know, if I talked to you in February of 2020, everything was on on pace to, to open uh, June 19th, 2020. Exactly. So what's the year of anticipation, worry, what if we, are there any points where you're like, maybe that we can't open this is the were there any financial concerns i mean it was just yeah. such an uncertain time overall let alone when you're trying to open something like this and you have to wait basically a year yeah it's it's hard to even recollect now how challenging and fraught this year has been for so many people um speaking from the museum's perspective we had not opened as a museum. And so we didn't have the kind of revenue demonstration that a number of the programs like uh, PPP that were available to um, small businesses and nonprofits that had previously been operating. How do, how do we demonstrate here are the ticket sales that we would have had or how, you know, how do we demonstrate what our revenues would have been as a nonprofit that was never able to open. So that was a challenge because um, we had expected to go into the year and we had had so much momentum behind us, had such a crowd of people who were excited uh, to experience the museum and such an outpouring of community support. But at the same time, here we were, we had, you know, we, we, never knew exactly when we would be able to open because there's been so much uncertainty throughout the pandemic. So how do we hire a team when we don't know what the future is going to bring? So we've been a very small, I'm a volunteer. I've been uh, our volunteer executive director from the start. Um, and we've had an incredible uh, volunteer support. All of our trustees have uh, been engaged in creating the exhibits, our work with the Macedonia Baptist Church, the historic committee, um, the community at large, so many people were volunteering. We really um, weren't able to support a staff until now when we were able to open and now we're bringing on and training museum ambassadors. Um, but on the other hand, this has been a year in which we've had the most important uh, social movement and conversation around these issues of our lifetimes. And um, so that has been really incredible 
we've been able to uh, do a lot of outreach through virtual programming. We've had dozens and dozens of schools and community organizations, synagogues, churches that have been able to experience the museum through virtual programming. Um, so in some ways, I think our, you know, uh, national versus local footprint group because everybody was sitting at home and, and a lot of people were contemplating the exact issues that are addressed by the museum. All that being said, for you personally, how emotional was it to finally open? Oh, it's just breathtaking to um, see the diversity uh, of people who were celebrating at Rotary Park when we had our Juneteenth grand opening and to see uh, how many people have embraced the stories of the community and um, gone themselves to do even more research and to bring things back. We've had so many incredible donations. Um, one sculpture that you'll find in the museum is by a woman named Kate Brockman, who's faculty at PAFA, Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. And she, in the beginning of COVID, was so inspired by Harriet Tubman's story and so inspired by the museum's uh, community grassroots story that she created a sculpture of Harriet Tubman at the time that she would have been in Cape May. Uh, we don't have that many pictures of her as a 30 year old about the age that she would have been when she was active in her missions and when she would have been in Cape May. She created the sculpture, which is astounding, and donated it to the museum. And on June 19th, our grand opening, the National Sculpture Society announced that that had won the gold medal of their annual exhibition. So the top winning prize of sculpture in the U.S. for the year went to this incredible uh, donation that Kate Brockman had made for us. So uh, it, it's just incredible to be able to share all of that now with um you know, and even more people are writing in and have developed such an emotional connection with the museum. And then the museum has also, you know, all of this preservation has spawned uh, a preservation kind of resurgence around uh, the spaces in Cape May that, and, and primarily in this quadrant near this corner that were also vacant and dilapidating and are so important to our history. And now those are being preserved as well. So it's part of a greater effort. People that come to the museum, what do you hope they walk away with as far as knowledge, the message, what, what do you hope visitors take from the museum? Um, well, there's no monopoly on untold stories. They are literally everywhere. I think most of Cape May as they walked down this street, saw a dilapidating building that they thought, you know, this, that maybe this could be used for something better. Didn't investigate the stories that are held by this space. And everyone can take those messages home and, you know, uh, revitalize uh, untold histories in their own communities. And people want to visit easiest way. Should they reserve tickets? Should they, can they just walk up? I know a lot of people as we're talking here, mid July, 
Cape May is going to be hopping for a couple of months. Uh, what would you advise best way to, that people that want to visit and make sure they can get in? Great. Well, we do have timed entries. We are still uh, both respecting the pandemic, but also the um, yeah the, the the capacity of the space. It's a fairly small space, so we do recommend reservations in advance. Those are available on our website, um, and we have you know timed e-ticket entry. Um, there are often spaces available throughout the day, but we've got we've had a lot of uh, sold out. Uh, thankfully, so a lot of sold out tours. So we do recommend reserving in advance. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. <laughs>